Some things are new, some things stay the same. There's, there's nothing new under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes wrote a very long time ago. Beloved, there is nothing so central to our identity that has been so recently threatened by our circumstances or by what we've allowed to surface in us as a consequence of our circumstances, and maybe we blame our circumstances too much. The trajectory that culture is on is not confined only to where the culture is. Surely what is happening widely is also happening locally. And the more we follow that trajectory just to sort of sift and sort ourselves into ever more narrowly like-minded silos, giving up on each other, burning bridges with one another, not caring a whit about one another if they have the most slightest different way of thinking as we do. The more we go, that's, that's why I have quoted to you early and late and why the quote from the W.H. Auden poem frames the title for this whole series. We must love one another or die. As we said to you at the beginning of our worship service, this is the season of Lent. Lent comes from a German word which, uh, which means loosely spring. Spring represents the lengthening of days, length, Lent. Understand the connection there. But in the Christian tradition, Lent is a season of reflection, of examination, and a meditation upon everything that led Jesus to enter into his passion. That what led him into his suffering, that was true of the world, that was true of you, that was true of me, we reflect on that. We also reflect upon what his suffering gained for us. And in that is love. And so for Lent, we're going to take a very patient, extended look to Paul's beautiful ode to the nature and centrality of love in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to go almost verse by verse, not to insult our intelligence, but perhaps to offer us a course correction that we're in need of. I welcome you to it, and I pray that God would bless it, and I pray that God would show us something from it. What we're going to do in listening to the first four verses of that famous passage is learn three things about love. Two tests for it, two marks of it, and one key to it. Two tests for it, two marks of it, and one key to it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Our central text today is found in Philippians 1 and Corinthians 13. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, 
I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant. This is the word of the Lord. It's important that we understand some of the context into which uh, Paul writes that beautiful, almost poetic narrative to love. Um, you've probably heard that passage quoted at not a few wedding ceremonies, and for good reason. It certainly speaks, it's certainly applicable to love, but it's not, he's not writing for a wedding. But he is writing for a bride, and that bride is the body of Christ. This text is situated between two chapters that is speaking directly to how is it that the church ought to love and function. In chapter 12, it has everything to do with the spiritual gifts that God has given those. We've spoken about those before in recent weeks. Not only the spiritual gifts, but how do you offer mutual respect to every single member of that body, regardless of what gifts they've been entrusted with? That's chapter 12. Chapter 14, what comes after here in chapter 13, because 14 always comes after 13, is a discussion about the nature of tongues, I will not be doing a demonstration of that manifestation this morning. I know your great disappointment in that. But, but that conversation is actually part of a wider conversation about the nature of worship. How do we conduct ourselves in worship? How should we think about worship? And how should we act as one voice in the context of worship? Those two chapters bookend what Paul has to say here in chapter 13. And therefore, what he has to say in chapter 13 is an attempt to remind everybody what does it mean to think of each other with respect and what does it mean to worship as one voice. And so here in chapter 13, I think what we're going to learn first of all is that there are two tests, two validations for what you're doing and whether it in fact is love. Um, when you go to Disney World and you want to leave, you know, maybe early in the day, well before closing so that you can go have a nap or, you know, go take a shower, whatever it might be, they stamp your hand with the invisible ink you leave, you come back, and then when you come back, they put the UV light on you to verify, oh, there's Mickey's face again. Okay, you can come in. You've been here before. We have validated that you've been for, you're, you're, you've passed the test. You, you test po positive, sorry. You've, you've seen that you've been there before. Friends, the first mark, or rather the first test of love is this. Is it visible? Is it seen? Is it greater than an intention? Does it expend any energy to do what you do? The, the translation here in the English Standard Version, it, it, it tends to describe love in terms of what attributes it has. And so you've heard in the passage, love is patient, love is kind. But if you were to look in the original language in which this text was written, all of the descriptions of love in those four verses, especially between verses four and seven, they're all verbs, 14 of them. They're not attributes, they're actions. So even though the English translation kind of speaks of love in terms of what love is or is not, it's probably better to translate them as what love does and does not. And when we get to the second point about the marks, we'll talk about what love does. But the first thing we have to recognize is that love, therefore, is something that is visible. It is an action. It is an effort. And therefore, and, and, and though we, we tend to think of love typically, or most often as an affection, as an emotion, 
what Paul is out here to remind us is that love is primarily an action. That's its test. And, and therefore, it can be seen. It, it comes into the light of day. It, it meets oxygen. How do I know that? You, you, you just back that up from what you know from, from the rest of the New Testament. When Jesus is coming to the grave of Lazarus, and he is there weeping and nearly gnashing his teeth at seeing what death has done to the world, what sin has done to the world, he, he's weeping there at his tomb. And what do they all say? See how he loved him. See it. And then in 1 John 3, which you, which you heard part of today, it, when it talks about the demonstration of what God's love is for us in Christ, it says, see how he loved us. See what kind of love the Lord has for us. That's the nature of love. It's, it's visible. Now, I, I probably need to put a little caveat in there. Love is not always seen at the moment it is extended. Um, case in point, raising children. It's more often than not that most of the efforts you extend on behalf of children do not even register in your children's minds that what you're doing is an act of love, if they ever get it. They'll get it, maybe. But in that moment, it's not seen by them, but it's still seen. It's still visible. And, and, and the other caveat is this. Sometimes the only one that sees your act of love is God alone. Nobody else might see it, but he sees it. Because what matters is the, the size of the crowd that takes measure or takes note of your love. That's, that does not determine the authenticity of it. It has everything to do with whether God sees it. Is it visible. Why do I need to say this? I, I, I don't want to insult your intelligence. Isn't it self-evident that love is a thing that is visible? You would think we would think that's obvious, but if there's anybody that needs to be reminded that love is visible, it's religious folks, and, and in particular Christians maybe. And, and one reason I know that is from perhaps the starkest word you hear from James in James chapter 2 when he says of the nature of love, of the nature and faith and works. He says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the thing needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's talking about love that is visible. And, and if you're feeling a little unsettled right now because you think, you know what, Martin Luther really didn't care much for the book of James, and what happened to grace? Have we forgot about grace? And Let's remind ourselves what Paul himself said that would make him nod his head to what James said. Paul in Galatians 5 reminds us of this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith in the love of God, which is what belief in the gospel is, is inseparable from love for those who are made in the image of God. Faith in the love of God is inseparable from love for those who are made in the image of God. Even if those who are made in the image of God don't particularly demonstrate love to you in return. More on that in a moment. It's something that we need to hear. Love, its first test is this. Is it visible? The second test goes hand in hand with the first. In fact, the two and two have to go together or they don't pass the test for whether it's love. One, is it visible? But two, is it trying to be visible? And, and where I, I get that second test is what you heard in the very 
first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, which are perhaps the most sobering words of the passage. He talks very explicitly about very visible acts. Visible acts that might impress anybody that's in with, within um, shooting distance of what they're witnessing. And because a lot of what's described there sounds a little bit like Paul is riffing on what he said only recently in chapter 12, this sounds like in those first three verses, like he's talking about spiritual gifts that are visibly on display, spiritual gifts that give off every indication that we've got love here, love expressed through those spiritual gifts. And yet what he says is this, it is possible that each of those demonstrations of what look like gifts can be devoid of love entirely. How is that possible? How is it that speaking prophetic words of wisdom and understanding the deep mysteries of faith and, and perhaps most starkly, these profound demonstrations of generosity and even sacrificial, self-sacrificial world, how can that be devoid of love? I'll tell you. Because it is possible for each of us, no matter whether those gifts find its way into Paul's list of spiritual gifts or not, it is possible for something to act within us that has more interest in our good than the good of those for whom they are ostensibly offered. And the only way I, the only reason I can believe that and, and really hold to that is nothing less than what Jesus says in his famous Sermon on the Mount. On three separate instances, in Matthew chapter 6, he speaks very explicitly about people doing highly visible religious acts. And what they're doing is visible, but they're trying to be seen. And so in Matthew 6, you hear him say, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Or a few verses later in verse 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then he rounds that out in verse 18 when he says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Oh, it's visible all right, but it's trying to be visible. I've, I've told you the illustration that Charles Spurgeon shared uh, 200 years ago almost about, about the, the royal court in which uh, one who was a gardener of his, of his own house brought to the king this enormous carrot, this carrot that he felt like would, would show honor to his king. He brings the carrot to the king. The king receives it with great astonishment. And, and because of what this gardener has offered him, he says, I want you to be uh, the chief gardener over all my royal gardens. And so he does. He blesses him with that expression of, of, impress, of, of love, and he, and he makes him larger, and he enlarges him with responsibility. Well, the guy that's the, the guy that runs the horses, the royal livery, he, he takes note of what just happened there. And so he goes back to the livery and, and pulls out his most important steed and brings it to the king. And he says, I would like you to have this horse, O king. And the king says, thank you, and receives the horse and, and sends it off to his own personal stables. And the owner of the livery kind of looks wide-eyed, wondering to himself what happened. And, and the king can read him like a book. And the king says to this man who brought him the horse, you're wondering why I'm not affording to you the same uh, kindness that I've shown to another. I'll tell you why. That man, he gave me the carrot. 
But you, you gave yourself the horse. There's a way of doing some mightily impressive, visible, uh, ostensibly self-sacrificial acts that have nothing to do with the one to whom you offer the sacrifice, but have everything to do with yourself. And therefore, if the love is trying to be visible, you have to ask yourself if it's love. Now, you might say to me, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, qu- you quoted Matthew chapter 6. Back up a little bit, Pastor. Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men? Why? So that they may see your good works. Sounds visible, and I'm, I'm hoping that they will be visible. Oh, yes, yes, I know it's there, but finish the paragraph. Finish the sentence. Why do you want them to see your good works? so that they might give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The test of love is, for whose grace's sake is your act done? Friends, welcome to my struggle. I know what this is like. I know what it's like to be motivated more to impress you with my words than for you to be impressed with him in whose name I ostensibly speak. We all have to ask ourselves in any given moment and perhaps on a season of reflection like what Lent offers us to ask us this, for whose sake am I demonstrating what looks to be love? Now, look, you you act visibly and, and without even trying to act visibly in love, it is very possible that you will be noticed, that you will gain naturally, if not inevitably, a kind of attention, if not admiration for what you're doing. And there's no shame in that. You don't have to, you know, run away from it. You can really say, thank you, I'm glad it's helping. What I'm saying by these two tests is that you just have to beware of what can silently, furtively slip into your motivational structure for what you're out to do there. Is what you're trying to do that can be visible, if only to God, also unconsciously out to be seen for yourself? That's the two tests of love. Is it visible, but is it trying to be visible? Those are the two tests. And those two tests manifest very clearly in what are the first two marks of love that we see in the passage. And the first mark of love is spoken of as love is patient. Now, Remember what I said earlier in the first point about how all of these words that describe love in 1 Corinthians 14 are actually verbs. And so it probably would be better to translate this first part of verse 4 by saying this, love waits patiently. It waits patiently. Now, I'm a married man, which means I have spent my fair share of time um, waiting on the front steps or sitting in the car waiting on someone I love. In fact, I've probably spent cumulatively over 20 years of life together enough time for me me to be able to walk to Mars and back and and even polish um, the perseverance. But what Paul means here, love you, lady, uh, what Paul means here by waiting patiently, it's a little bit grittier than that. Uh, The actual term in the original language is macrothumie, large passion long suffering. That's why um, whatever uh, uh, problem you might have with the King James Version, it more accurately grasps what it means, what love is here. Love is long suffering. 
Love is willing to endure something difficult. It's willing to endure struggle for the sake of something that is good. And therefore, it is, it is something richer, more raw, grittier than just sitting in the car yelling out, when are you going to be here? It's, it's something deeper than that. It has to be. It is, it is like what a, a, a woman in, in, endures in childbirth. It is like what you do for a friend who is struggling with addiction by not giving up on them. It is long-suffering. It is, it is being willing as you seek a change, as you long to see a good prevail, that you are willing to face disappointment after disappointment, face frustration after frustration, face any number of struggles that you might see love prevail. Now, I really want to be clear about what it means to say that it's long-suffering, that love waits patiently. This, this kind of patience, this kind of long-suffering, it's not, it's not merely a passivity. It's not choosing merely not to act. And, and all you have to do is go back to the civil rights movement to see uh, this kind of clarity, this kind of nuance having to be fleshed out here. During the civil rights movement, uh, there were those who, would, who, would, who had had sympathy for that movement, but who would come to those who were at the head of the movement and say, you know, can you, can you ease up on the marches? Can you back off on the protests? Can you sit down from the sit-downs? Can just be patient, okay? Let, let the process kind of work itself out. And those who were at the head of the movement say, we can't, we can't be patient anymore. We, we can't be patient while you people think about whether or not there should be lynching laws. We can't be patient anymore about whether you think that, that people um, should be treated with respect and dignity and, and treated with fairness. You can't, we can't be patient with that. We're, we're seeking a good that is good, that is God's good. We can't just sort of sit on our hands and wait for that to happen. And so what they demonstrated was genuine long-suffering. They continued to put themselves in the space where they would invite themselves to be ridiculed and, and harmed and and spoken of with the most vile, vitriolic words you could imagine, and even be killed if not harmed. But they did so for the sake of being good. They didn't suffer for the sake of suffering. They suffered for the sake of being, for seeking what was good. It's the nature of the long-suffering to be able to do that. And when they did that, they made a mark. They weren't simply being passive. But what they did refuse to do was this. They refused to become what they loathed in the one who was denying them justice. They refused to meet fire with fire. They refused to take up the same standards that those who were denying them kindness and love. That's long-suffering. And that's one caveat we have to understand about this. And the second is this. When it comes to long-suffering. Some have in the past misconstrued that as a willingness to suffer abuse insofar as you are able to resist that abuse, to continue to put up with abuse is actually not an act of love. Because in permitting them to continue in that way, insofar as you are able to avoid it, and to resist it, to, to allow them to continue in that way is not an act of love because it's allowing them to cultivate that impulse even more deeply in them every time they try. 
When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, there's two things it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean going and retreating into a corner, and it also doesn't mean trying to break their neck. But it does mean resisting that, if only that they might see what they're doing, if only that they might realize that what they're continuing to do is not only harming another, but harming themselves. Can you see how radically other-centered this nature of long-suffering is? It is an act of love to resist when they are acting with abuse. And we have to say that in the context of the nature of what it means to love. That's the first mark of love. Is it willing to endure struggle, frustration, suffering, inconvenience that something better might prevail? It's a lot more than just waiting in a car. The other mark is this. And it goes hand in hand with the first. When Paul says love is kind, to borrow the original language terminology, it means that love shows kindness. And if I were to ask you, you know, in the thick of the minute, what is kindness? You, you could probably point to me demonstrations of what you thought was kind, even if you were hard-pressed to give words to it. But I think you might say that kindness is this. It is having another's welfare utmost in your mind, whether they have your welfare in mind or not. It is doing them good, even if they've done you wrong. That's kindness. It is, to borrow that old adage, be kind to everyone you meet because everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And that's more often true than not. It's the nature of kindness. Now, there's a counterfeit version of it that we all have to reckon with. There is a kind of what shows itself as kindness that is really just accommodating someone. It's it's really just deferring to their will, even though a true kindness would be to confront them, to, to say to them a fierce word. That's a demonstration of kindness. And that's why you hear in, in Psalm 141, the psalmist acknowledging this, let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. That's kindness. That's the business end of kindness. So, Kindness is not simply knuckling under and, and deferring to what they want. Sometimes it is getting in their face. But there are other moments in which you suffer fools gladly. In which you're willing to endure their lack of kindness in order to do that. And if I might say this, it, there is a counterfeit version of it, but there is maybe one expression of kindness that perhaps has particular relevance for our day that there's one new thing that perhaps we need all to embrace as a new spiritual discipline that I think is directly downstream of kindness and showing kindness today. And that thing is curiosity. Curiosity enough to listen. Curiosity enough to learn. There are plenty of people who may have sharp disagreements with who you are, and our first instincts in that moment is to defend ourselves and show them that they're wrong. And they may be. But at one mark of kindness that perhaps is in great short supply this day is the interest in curiosity, if only to understand where they stand. 
Look, I, I've shared with you a few years ago about the remarkable story of Daryl Davis. He's a, he's a jazz musician. He is a black man. And, and something got in him uh, at some point in his life facing any number of racists in his day, especially those who were proud to call themselves members of the KKK. And he would go and make friendships with those who were in the Klan, eventually asking if they'd be willing to sit down and talk about what led them to join the Klan and to understand where they were coming from, if only to hear themselves. And at some point along the way, at least as of four years ago, at least two dozen of them had realized as they heard themselves and heard this black man come to befriend them and to be curious about where they stood, that they ended up leaving the clan and giving him their grand dragon costumes and the pointy hat. That's kindness. That's curiosity. He might rightfully despise everything they embodied and properly to do so. But he decided that he would look past that and to sit with them. And so you can hear him say in an interview uh, not long after the, the documentary that came out called An Accidental Courtesy, he wrote this, find someone who disagrees with you, invite them to your table, give them a platform. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another over a period of time, and the cement that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. And then it fell apart. That doesn't happen unless you're interested in being kind. And that will never happen unless that kindness has at least one component of curiosity built into it. Are you willing? It sounds like love. It smells like love when you try that. Even if it fails, even if they become more hardened in their own position. Look, I don't have to listen to Daryl Davis to learn an example of that. All I have to do is drive to Fletcher. I became aware of a story this week about someone that you know that had an opportunity to show someone else a kind of kindness via an expression of curiosity. And I want you to listen to my brief exchange with him that I had this week where he gets to tell that story. So when you talk about love and particularly about kindness, the world needs stories to understand what that looks like. And Lord knows this sermon needs pictures and stories of what that looks like. And I want to share one of those stories with you from somebody that many of you know. Now, what he did in his expression of love was both visible uh, to whom it mattered, but it wasn't trying to be visible. Uh, he didn't come to me uh, to ask me to tell this story. Um, I heard about it and I, I came to him. So, uh, Mickey, what was the occasion that gave you the opportunity to have a chance to show somebody some kindness? Okay, well, I have a good friend of 25 years that decided on January the 6th that he no longer wanted to be my friend because of our political differences. I received three texts from him on that evening. And he said, uh, you did, we didn't vote alike on this. And he said, you are not my friend any longer. And then he sent another text that said, goodbye. Another text said forever. Well, that kind of 
really upset me. Um, here was a Christian brother who let political differences crash our friendship. I prayed and waited for a while and for an answer. Um, I thought maybe it would just blow away or blow, <laughs> it would get around it. I, just share, I decided to share my concern and my upsetness with brothers at Grace at our Wednesday night gathering and ask them for some wisdom. I did, and uh, God put it on my heart to ask for that wisdom. I know he did. And I was canceled during that time that I needed to take the first step. Um, at first, I thought that would be a little hard to do, but I did, and I wrote a text apologizing for anything I had done or said to offend or or hurt. And I admitted that I, in my lifetime, I had done that to people numerous times um, because I can say some hurtful things. Well, after about three or four weeks from when this all occurred, um, my friend contacted me and said he was coming over to see me. He did, and we talked and came to agreement that what we do and believe about Jesus is more important than anything else. And uh, so through that, we reconciled. And our differences didn't matter anymore. I spoke with him today, and I've spoken with him several times during over the last two weeks after we did reconcile. And I praise God for that. Imagine if that little dance could be replicated across the earth. Because in, in how many instances, on the basis of any number of issues, would that be possible? See, Mickey could have just sort of, you know, allowed that contempt to brood, and instead he wanted to be understanding. He, he was curious. And in that moment, he had to pull back. They both had to pull back and realize that there was something greater even than that which they helped, held with great vehement conviction that they had to see that what was between them was greater. And in fact, what was even greater before them and between them was what they knew of who Christ was. And and for either of them to step into that space was unpleasant. It, it required a part of them that they probably didn't enjoy in the moment, but they sure enjoyed after it was done. That's friends long-suffering and showing kindness in real time, in real space. Imagine if it would go forward in us. In how many ways would it reunite us or the church or the world? But see, it requires something greater and that's what gives me to the last thing i need to say to you because to these marks of kindness that themselves pass the tests of love these marks of love they're more than just marks they're they're more than just 
proofs that love is real or, or, or pointing to what its nature is. They point to the very key, the very essential element for any of this love to manifest in these ways that are both visible but aren't trying to be visible. They are pointers. And what I mean by pointers is this. What I mean by a key is this, that what you've heard spoken of as the marks of love is what gets us to the proper motivation for any kind of love. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing his Jewish colleagues, his Jewish friends, who because of their privilege of having known the God of Israel for uh, millennia, who have received what he's heard from them, who have seen his um, work at practice um, for the entirety of their uh, national existence, they have had a temptation to look down upon those who were not Jews, to look down on those who were Gentiles. And yet what Paul was out to say in Romans chapter 2 is that we're all in the same boat, Jew and Gentile, young and old, no matter what ethnicity you're a part of, not whether, not whether, no matter what socioeconomic strata you exist in, we're all in the same boat. We all have the same issue. We all have the same need. And that was encapsulated in what he says there in verses 3 and 4 of Romans 2. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Both words, both marks of what is love are self-evident in the God who has shown us himself both kind and patient. But Paul was not speaking in a generic way of God's overall character, even though that is certainly central to his character. Paul is speaking specifically about a specific expression of patience and long-suffering and kindness, and that is what he did so through his son. He was kind to those of us who were unkind to him and was willing to suffer long for them in his son. What God calls from us, He first does for us in His Son. Before He ever asks us to reflect the love that He shows, He first invites us to rest and receive what He has done on our behalf. Beloved, this is the gospel. For those of you who don't believe that, I invite you to believe that God has been both long-suffering and showed you kindness first. In fact, our only capacity in order to love as He loved is to believe first and rest first that He first loved us. Beloved, when it will be hard for you to see good manifest without having to endure something difficult and inconvenient and even painful, this text is calling you to love and die. Die to your desire not to want to suffer. And when you want to show good to someone who's not showing you good, this text is calling you to love and die. Die to your more natural impulse to show them exactly what they're showing you. Because when it comes to this call to love, you have three options for what will motivate you. You can either do so out of pride, 
this is just beneath me. I have to love. This is just what we do around here. It's a virtue. How could I not love? That's, that's, that's really pride at work here. Or you can say, if I don't love, I'm afraid of what might happen to me or to others if I don't love. And, and whereas that's a powerful motivation of itself, that's really a motivation by fear. But what God is calling us to be motivated by is mostly by his love for us. That what we re- receive and rest on in him, that's what's meant to be a reflection of who he is. Friends, he has come to love and die for you that we might live and then also maybe even love. We must love one another and die. So let us take this season of Lent to reflect upon our hearts, whether our love is visible and whether it's trying to be visible, and whether we see great love in long-suffering and kindness, but only on the basis of the way he has loved us first. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's much easier to speak of this, to speak with the tongues of men and of angels and to unpack deep mysteries and to even give off the impression of great generosity and sacrifice. But we would pray that you would help us to love in a way that is true and to risk it in the places that is devoid of it. And help us to practice it first among our own community that we might live in the laboratory of love here so that we might learn to love far beyond these claims, far beyond these confines in places where love does not reign supreme. Oh, Father, help us to regain the reputation of love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So, beloved, I welcome you to a holy Lent And I invite you to your own meditation upon what has led him to his cross and what his cross has benefited us all who have placed our faith in him, feeble and weak and stumbling as that faith may be. So go with this word of benediction. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The peace of the Lord be with you. Amen.